Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, the show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Ivana, and I have with me Dr. Randy Galuza, president of ICR. Welcome. Well, thank you. This is part two of our CET episode. We've already been discussing continuous environmental tracking, or CET is what we'll probably refer to for the rest of this episode. And I just wanna pause here. If you have not watched the first part of CET episode or our natural selection episode, I encourage you to pause this episode, come back once you've watched those. That way you have a groundwork of what we're talking about and how those two ideas relate to each other. So don't miss those episodes. But as we get started, just to let our audience know, this was an idea that came to you, and I wanted you to explain what led you to view these organisms differently than what we have probably been taught all our lives. Yes, thanks for pointing people to do the background so we don't have to rehash a lot (laughs) of that material all over. Everybody had heard of the rise of the intelligent design movement. And it has contributed a lot of very useful things, and a lot of creationists read those materials. They had some good discussion about why organisms looked like they were designed and some good explanations for that. Mm -hmm. And some people found that they were a little hard to follow. Not that they were wrong, but they were just somewhat complicated. So I endeavored to try to explain some of their concepts and even add some more in layman's terms. So I started a series of articles for ICR called Clearly Seen, Constructing Solid Arguments for Design. And I was trying to translate those. And early on, I came to the question, well, wait a second here. How do, how do evolutionists even approach this whole idea of design? What's their explanation for why organisms look so designed? And I started reading and hunting it down, and it just popped up over and over and over again that it was this natural selector, this agent of nature, Mm -hmm. which was able to act on, favor, work on, and all of these kinds of things that was explaining design. And it occurred to me, wow, they're using this like it's a substitute engineer. They're using it in their explanations as a causal force. They're using it as an engineer would specify in a set of plans and drawings and things like that. But this can't be because I believed in natural selection, and the key word was I believed in. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have to use those phrases, I believe in, you, from a scientific standpoint, you should second-guess yourself. And I, 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 had, I went through a period of time where it was very hard to let go because I had this prior training where I believe in natural selection. And some people would say, creationists believe in natural selection, almost like it was a little dogma. And it wasn't until I started to question whether selection was real and whether it even made any sense that my eyes became open and it became very, very clear that all Darwin had done was personify nature. There wasn't a real process of natural selection. Nobody can see a real process of natural selection. Nobody can pinpoint what's being selected. In fact, you want to start a fight amongst evolutionists, just claim, hey, I think it's the organism that's being selected, and someone say, I think it's the population that's being selected, or I think it's this trait, or I think it's the genes, or whatever it is. Nobody can even pinpoint what's being selected, and they'll end up in a big brawl. And so I started to realize that there's a lot of stuff that's not even real here. It's just their way of interpreting data. And their way of interpreting the data is an anti-design approach. Mm-hmm. And it brought me right back to my articles. Oh, I'm going to explain, I'm going to explain these organisms. I'm going to explain design. 
I need to go one step further. I need to start explaining the functions of biological organisms in terms of design. I need to start explaining how they reproduce, how they adapt, how they metabolize, all these kinds of things in terms of engineering principles. So that's what became the basis for that series on Clearly Seen. And then I jumped into adaptation. Okay, if I'm going to use an engineering approach to explaining biological functions, what would be my model to explain how organisms adapt? What's the model? And I based it on a model of a human tracking system because tracking systems are sophisticated things that humans have engineered that are able to keep track of a moving target. And in the organism's case, the moving target is usually the environment. Mm -hmm. That's the moving target. Sometimes they track a real moving target, but in reality, it's, it's the environment that's the moving target. And I'm going to then frame how organisms adapt as if they're tracking a moving target, which then became the basis for laying out the main points of continuous environmental tracking. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, just seeing how, as you did in your own research, I'm so grateful that that was something that started to stand out to you and that you would even think to question it. And as we've looked back at other episodes and as we'll go further in this one, I'm hoping that our listeners will pay attention to why this difference is, is a big impact, not only in science, but for those of us who are following Christ, how that fits in. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, just a brief recap of last episode, the first part of CET, we talked about how that model, it demonstrates that living organisms, they are not forced to adapt by their environment, as you mentioned, but rather it's the agency within them and they change themselves and it comes from within them. And God seemed to design these creatures with innate abilities within their DNA. And as we talk about those changes, what would be maybe some of the triggers or things that happen to notify the creature to change? Yes, you just nailed it. I mean, that is the main question. Why are the creatures changing? Mm -hmm. and what's the cause of that? And it's really hard for people to tease out because organisms were designed to relate to their environment. And you even used a really good word there, trigger, on that. And, and engineers have a very precise way of looking at triggers. Mm -hmm. So let's back just a little bit and let's see, what are the fundamental elements of a tracking system? What, what has to sure. be a part of any adaptable system? If humans are going to design something to adapt, there are three things that have to be in it. And if any one of them are missing, it can't adapt. One, you have to know what's happening in your environment. Therefore, you need a sensor. You need a sensor. That's giving you eyes on the target, eyes on the environment. No sensors, you're blind. You don't even know that the environment's changing. Mm -hmm. Next, you need some built-in logic that says, if the environment does this, then I want to do that. It's if-then logic. If the environment, then do this. And then you have to have a way to affect those changes, an output mechanism. So some people would see it input, logic, output. And if any of those are missing, you can't adapt. Well, if that's true for man-made things, is that true for creatures? The answer is yes. Creatures have those exact same parts, those same elements of a system. They have sensors. 
They have innate logic, which really needs to be fleshed out better in biology. That's a weak area where we don't really know exactly what's going on. But we do know that many genetic changes are not random. They're highly purposeful. They're targeted. They're specific. They're not just hitting all over the genome willy-nilly. Many of the changes are, are in specific things, and they have adaptable purposes. And then they have outputs. So... How does this get to the fact that we relate to the environment? And that goes to how engineers will specify a stimulus. A stimulus. Now, mm -hmm. you notice I didn't use the word trigger. Mm -hmm. I said a stimulus. And the trigger, a real trigger, is always part of the entity. So if you have a gun, mm -hmm. it has a trigger. Correct. It's part of it. It's not away from it. It's part of it. And triggers are a sensor. All triggers are always a sensor. And the sensors are designed to be specific to a condition, an external condition. So there is this part that external conditions play, but they are not the real triggers. If you take the trigger away off the gun, it's never going to fire, no matter what the conditions are. So what makes a stimulus? So right now, Ivana, you are being bombarded with AM radio waves. <laughs> and I'm being bombarded with them too. But if I were to ask you in all honesty, are you hearing AM radio in your head? I am not, not you, currently. You are not, not currently, <laughs> not today. If you did, I'd have some medications for you. Thank That's you. it. <laughs> and we're not, nobody is. Even though we're being exposed to that. In fact, we are, we're being exposed to all different kinds of conditions, mm -hmm. and we're completely blind to them mm -hmm. because we don't have a sensor for them that is specified for those conditions. Some creatures can see infrared. Some creatures can see ultraviolet. Some creatures can sense and hear and do things that we're completely blind to. So an engineer, when they design an entity, will always specify, I want this condition this condition to be a stimulus and therefore I will build on the entity a trigger that is specific for mm -hmm. that stimulus. So when the condition is present, if the condition is present, the sensor will detect it and it will send data in enabling the self-adjusting thing to begin to adjust itself. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how organisms do it as well. We're, we're, we're used to that when it comes to vision or hearing. We don't think of it in terms of long-term adaptation, but it's true. It affects our adaptations from very rapid adjustments, like a physiological change. So if someone shot a gun right now, boom, your heart rate would go up instantaneously almost. That's a very rapid physiological adjustment. And if I took you to Pikes Peak, you would acclimate to that in a short period of time. But there's adjustments you can make even over longer periods of time, but whether it's fast or long, they're going to use those same basic elements. Okay, that's a great explanation. So it's input, sensor, output is maybe the way that we can adapt the exactly. um, engineering view. Exactly. If one of them's gone, no adaptation. Not. Okay, that is very helpful to start understanding. 
Um, so what are some of these mechanisms? If you can list a few, I'm sure there's several different examples that we could pull from, but what are some of those mechanisms that are in place to allow these changes? Well, the ones that everybody are probably from, most familiar with are genetic mechanisms. You know, you, you everybody thinks in terms of the genes, and the genes um, code for lots of things, but they multiple genes come together and they influence your traits. So if you can get a genetic change, then you can change the, the traits on things. There are mechanisms in place that we know of that, and nobody knows exactly how it happens, but there's specific machinery that can lead to very specific genetic changes. One of them is a, called a genetic hotspot. There are portions of the genome which change faster than other portions. And the places where they're changing affects adaptable traits. So those are called genetic hotspots. Another type of genetic change is a transposable element. And that's a piece of DNA that can be cut out. Tiny little genetic machinery comes by, machinery specific for the, for the genome, and it can cut out a piece of the DNA, move it to another place on the chromosome, and insert it. And when it's inserted, it brings other little portions of DNA with it that can change the expression of genes, modify their expressions. And often these are quite adaptable as well. There are other areas on the genome which has repeated DNA. It might just be, I'll just use letters that everybody's familiar with, ABC. So if one ABC, 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 changing the number of those repetitive elements can change traits too. There's all of these types of genetic changes, mm -hmm. and I could go on, there's many others, and they appear to be highly regulated, and they appear to be adaptable. There's another area of change, which are called epigenetic changes, which means something above the genome, where we're not actually having changes to the genes themselves or the genome themselves. It's changes to markers on the genes there's little chemical tags that are stuck on the DNA, and where those tags are stuck will change the expression of the genes. Sometimes mm -hmm. if they're gone, they'll allow genes to be expressed. Sometimes if they're on, so they turn things on and off, and they're epigenetic changes. And epigenetic changes generally allow for a very rapid type of adaptation. So if the environment changes quickly, Organisms are able to affect these epigenetic changes in order to bring about very rapid changes. And what's interesting about them is when the condition goes back to baseline, the epigenetic markers can kind of go back to baseline. So they allow organisms to flex very rapidly with environmental changes. Okay, there's a, a lot. It sounds like you could go on even more as far as some of these examples of these mechanisms. And I'm just taking it all in and I think about how in the past I would say I would think of natural selection in terms of well this is animals changing for whatever purpose but as you're explaining it it's, it's really just across the board as far as creatures go that we were just all made with this ability to adapt it may not be the same extent as animals needing to adapt for certain reasons um, but I'm, I'm seeing that it's just across the board of how we were designed to function at least that's if that if that's correct i'm not sure yes that's correct yeah it's across the board and across yeah. time organisms continuously track their environment yeah. that means 
from very rapid things to your generation to multi-generation. It's a continuous. Mm -hmm. So adaptation is a spectrum. And that's another way we should probably start looking at it. It's, it's not a point in time. And speciation, people talk about that, is not a destination. Speciation is probably just a point in time as organisms have changed. They can't change in an unlimited way. They, they can change only within specific design parameters. But within those parameters, you can get an awful lot of changes. So a species, we can get various species within a group of organisms. That may, as I said, may not be a destination at all. It just may be a waypoint on their journey within their limited range of change. In other words, you're not going to get dogs to change into cats. Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying that. But dogs will continuously track their environment and they can express traits specific for their environments. And what we really need to take home from this is, it's as you just pointed out, it's not random. It's not like we learned with selectionism that these changes are happening willy-nilly. Mm -hmm. there, there can be random changes to a genome where something is broken during copying or gets um, altered by a chemical or even a, a radiation. Those types of changes are almost always bad. They just break something. They just get in there and they just yeah. bang. It's random. It's just broken. As Frank Sherwin says, it's like sticking a screwdriver in your computer <laughs> and hoping to make things better. But what most people don't realize is that many genetic changes are highly regulated and they're very specific and they lead to changes in traits which are highly adaptable. Okay. So I'm hearing these hints of, of purpose, of function, and when we talk about these adaptations through CET, are these changes conscious or subconscious, or could it vary? It varies. I, the vast majority of them are subconscious. Okay. They are they're actually working out the logic that the Lord Jesus built into the creatures. So when we have if-then logic, and you can, you can string all of those conditional mm -hmm. statements together. If this, then do that. And then it goes to, but if this, then do that. But if this, then do that. Mm -hmm. And you can end up going down a very complicated logic tree. And the logic tree is reflecting the thinking of the programmer. The programmer is thinking in advance. If these organisms encounter these things, then I want them to do this, and I want them to do this, and I want them to do this. So they effect that by building it into the logic that they would put inside a computer, but it's also built into the logic that was put inside creatures. So when we see this logic, we are actually, we're in many ways, we're able to see the logic of the Lord Jesus as he was designing these creatures to do these things along those lines. Mm -hmm. And it's happening at the molecular level. So it's, it's completely subconscious altogether and we could even do another episode where I could uh, discuss how organisms are able to anticipate mm. changes. Mm -hmm. The Lord even built mechanisms where, and we, I won't, we won't you know, let the cat out of the bag too soon, mm -hmm. but they can anticipate changes that are coming in their environment. They've, they've been programmed in these incredible ways that allow them to even, um, just with almost like a type of foresight, guess what's coming and adapt in advance to what's coming. Wow. So that would be a whole new episode. Okay. Well, we have to keep that in mind. And do you have any um, maybe favorite examples of CET in action? Something that as you were 
thinking through this and you saw this example of how this really does point to CET, do you have anything that stood out to you? Oh, there's many, many examples, and they can go from epigenetic changes to the genetic changes. There were some experiments that were done on some of so-called Darwin's fitches down in the Galapagos Islands, mm -hmm. and they're looking at their beaks, which was like an icon of evolution, that the beaks would change slowly, and it was based on you know the hard seeds or the soft seeds, and those that could manage to break the hard ones, they lived and the other ones died or vice versa, whatever it is. This is this death-driven view. Mm -hmm. But researchers found with two different populations of these finch, some that lived in the rural area that were still eating traditional finch food, and some that had moved into the urban area were eating like human trash food. <laughs> uh, within just two generations, beak sizes had changed. And not only that, they had different changes in their morphology as well. And they had rapidly adjusted to the change in diet. And it wasn't genetic changes. It was those epigenetic changes that I was talking mm -hmm. about. And that just goes to show that some things we think are icons of evolution, when you study them further and when you think outside the selectionist paradigm, which is like a mental trap mm -hmm. so that you can't even think clearly, um, you're able to look for other explanations for these things. And, and that fits in with a CET framework really well. Another one that people are interested in, which kind of shows a rapid adaptation, are these fish that live down in the Caribbean. They're called reef race. And we have this very colorful male and will um, take care of about 12 females there in, in this group. But if the male dies or if the male is fished out, then what happens to the group? Well, one of the females can detect, in fact, they, all the females can detect that the male's gone, mm -hmm. but not only can they detect that the male's gone, they can detect which one is the largest female, and within a day, her ovaries regress, she forms testes, and she'll begin to morph into a male wow. very rapidly. I mean, these are kinds of changes like, how is this happening? There's obviously no selection here. There's clearly mechanisms which are in these creatures allow them to make these very radical changes in these areas. My goodness, those are very compelling examples um, just of what's going on when we actually take a deeper look yeah. at, at these creatures. The creatures can actually form different organs. They can form things de novo. Um, you can look at how creatures respond to uh, the, the radiation at Chernobyl. We can look at many different areas. And if you leave the selectionist framework behind and you go to an engineering-based framework, mm -hmm. You can rapidly make good explanations of what's happening with these creatures. And if you are doing research on them, it would point you to the right ways and the right areas to do research on them. Yeah. Man, why don't people know about this? That's my question. Because they're not watching our podcast. I know. Watch the podcast. But um, one more question that I had for you, and then, of course, you can give us any other final remarks, but... For ICR, this is something that we've really kind of shifted our research focus and we want to emphasize and shed more light on CET. Um, could you just maybe speak to our viewers, as, especially as president, um, of what that shift will look like or maybe some things that you, you hope for our supporters and future supporters to gain from uh, this model of CET? Yes, it's become the main focus of our research not our exclusive focus. So 
all of you folks who are listening who still love geology and mm-hmm. astronomy and the Ice Age and those kinds of things, those are not cut out. Dr. Clary's still doing his research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are putting a, a significant amount of our resources on building this model of adaptation called CET. And we're looking in two areas where it could make a big difference. One is in the cavefish models. And so we're doing research on those. We're getting some interesting findings right at the beginning. Nothing that I can report on, and I don't want to give any preliminary things that might not be come out right. We mm-hmm. want to give good data when we get these. And then some research in terms of mosquitoes, you know, those biting little pesty things. I know them. That, yeah, that nobody really likes. So we are, and we'll probably branch off into a couple other model organisms uh, to do additional research on. Mm -hmm. We are building a brand new lab that will be housing all of this live animal research. Part of it will be viewable from our discovery center so people can look in and see what we're doing in those areas. But it is a, a major emphasis for ICR to start looking at organisms if they were really engineered, to start developing our theory of biological design to flesh out this continuous environmental tracking model of Mm -hmm. adaptation, which is an organism-focused design-based model to explain what organisms are doing. That's great. And I'm going to ask one more question. If you could just connect all these things together, I know there's so much more information we could go into, but why is this type of model important for Christians? What... What do we stand to gain or even lose if we don't pay attention to this type of model? Well, this model really emphasizes the Lord Jesus Christ's creative genius, his engineering genius. Mm-hmm. We, we completely abandon all that other stuff, which we've talked about on the previous podcast that Darwinism brought in and selectionism brings in, the mysticism, the magic, the personifications of nature, the wishy-washy causal explanations which just flood evolutionary literature, and we leave that all behind. We leave behind, from a Christian perspective, this death-driven worldview that Darwin brought in, and we usher in a completely new perspective of creatures, which is life-based, life-focused. We look at creatures as active problem-solving entities that the Lord has enabled to take on challenges, solve them, and actively fill the earth. And as creatures continuously fill a changing earth, that ability, that phenomenal adaptive ability, which I can say from an engineering perspective, takes a lot of engineering work to do, is a nonstop, continuous display of the creative genius of the Lord Jesus Christ that he built into those creatures. So you're liberated from the shackles of selectionism that are there, and you're introduced into a completely fresh way of looking at creatures and how they relate to their environment, one that really exalts the Lord Jesus Christ, puts the spotlight on his abilities to design and what he did. It emphasizes his loving character. It emphasizes his incredible wisdom. And that's what we're all about. And that's to lift up the name of Jesus. Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted our listeners to hear. Could not have said it any better. So thank you so much for spending this time explaining this model with me today. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. 
And thank you to all of our listeners and viewers. We're so glad that you're joining us on this podcast. Remember to subscribe for future episodes. Go back and watch the previous episodes if you have any questions about CET and natural selection. And you can find our podcast on YouTube or anywhere else you find your podcasts. My name is Ivana, and we'll see you next time on The Creation Podcast.